The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to James chapter 5. I'd like for us to read the last two verses from, from James. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and anyone turns him back, he must know that the one who has turned a sinner from the error of his way shall save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you today. We're so thankful for this conference and so thankful for those that are hungry to learn more of your word and put it into practice, Father, not only in our own lives, but hopefully by your grace in the lives of others. And we pray for your help now. We commit this time to you. We pray that you would use it to better equip us. We pray that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In Jesus' name, amen. We're talking uh, in this conference about um, rescuing the wandering. And it should remind us that the, the Christian life is, is a race, right? Of course, that is the famous metaphor in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, that we are to run the race with endurance that's been set before us. And so what that means is that if the Christian life is a race, then it means that there's a finish line. And if there's a finish line, then finishing well is important. But I would say that not only finishing well is important, I would say that sometimes just finishing is important. Remember years ago... You can see this on YouTube. There's this uh, uh, Tanzanian marathon runner, uh, Joseph, uh, John Stephen uh, Aquari. It was the 1968 Mexico Olympics, and he is running. But running is really not an apt description of what he's doing. He has gauze hanging off of his leg, tape. He's hobbling. It is absolutely agonizing to watch. And it just tugs at your heart to see this guy struggling step after step. But he finishes. He had been injured. He was in agony. And he was being interviewed. And uh, the, the whole world had just watched this heart-wrenching run And the interviewer asked him, why didn't you just quit? You were in so much pain. Why didn't you just quit? And this is what he said. My country didn't send me 5,000 miles to start a race, but to finish a race. That is, in a sense, sort of the the Christian life. God calls us all to finish the race. And some will go across the finish line with their chest out and the ribbon going across and others will hobble across. But we are all required to persevere. And so um, the perseverance of the saints, therefore, requires this one fundamental thing. Perseverance. Right. And so when we think about this, this issue of perseverance, the necessity to finish the race, it kind of brings together two things for us that make us sometimes a little uncomfortable, and that is the doctrine of God's sovereignty in keeping his own all the way to the end, and then also the doctrine of 
personal responsibility to make sure that you finish the race and actually run all the way to the end. And so, in a sense, the perseverance of the saints um, is a convergence of, of two biblical truths. The doctrine of divine sovereignty, for instance, I am convinced that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ, Philippians 1.6. We take great comfort in those texts that teach us that God keeps us, God preserves us, God finishes what he starts, we're his sheep, he doesn't lose any, just preached uh, last Lord's Day, of all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and all who come to me I will in no wise cast out. This is the Father's will, that all who come to me I lose nothing, right? And so that's, in a sense, that's the divine sovereignty side. But there are also all kinds of passages that say, you better finish the race. Mark 13, 13, it's the one who endures to the end who shall be saved. And so this kind of brings us to the uh, issue of, of the mystery, as it were, between sovereignty and responsibility. And that's not really what we're here to talk about. I hope you think about those things. I, think, I hope you think hard about those things. But I also hope that you think about those things in a balanced way so that you don't use one side to eclipse the other. That's always sort of the tendency that we have when we do theology is that, is that we, we think that somehow if I like these texts better, then they outweigh the text that I'm not overly fond of. And, and as biblical counselors, none of us have the prerogative to actually do that. And so this is, a, this is a wrestling with texts. How do these things fit together? But we're just going to make a basic assumption here for our session, and then you can come and talk to me later if you have a different view. Um, I am pretty stubborn, though, so I doubt you'll change my mind. So the title of the, of the session is Save the Saints. And I got to tell you that I, I actually stole that title. It's not original. Uh, John Piper's brothers were not professionals. He's got a wonderful chapter in there, Brothers Save the Saints. So that's give John Piper credit for that. The title is designed to actually bring together the idea of what we do in counseling and the perseverance of the saints. All right. Taking James 5, 19 and 20 as, as our text. So to persevere... To run that race all the way to the end is to use the appointed means that God has given us. He didn't just say, you know, hey, go out there and just start, just run around until your heart's content. You know, I've got three grandsons, a little four-year-old and then two uh, little twins that are two and a half years old. And they will run around like, like they're on fire, with no, just aimlessly, right? And uh, God doesn't say, this is the Christian life. Just run around until you tire yourself out. No, there's a course. And that course, God has given us certain means by which we finish that course. All right. So to persevere means that we use means, appointed means. God has provided those means that enable us all to finish the race. And one of those means is the local church. In fact, I would say that there are a multitude of means within that primary means of the local church. As biblical counselors, we should be absolutely committed to the primacy and centrality of the local church, right? What we do should be, should be um, taking place within the context of the local church. So I want us to think in terms of perseverance of the saints, finishing the race, and one of the primary means by which we all finish the race is the ministry of the local church. All right. So how does God use the local church uh, to keep us running the race? Well, first of all, in a sense, it's in as the church proclaims the gospel that we get into the race. 
right? And I'm not saying that you have to be saved in a church building, but what I'm saying is the ministry of the church to make disciples is to bring people through the gospel to faith in Jesus, and that's what starts them on the race, right? But the New Testament is not um, predominantly concerned so much about what are the mechanics of getting people into the race. It's once they're into the race, how do you keep them running? So I know this is going to be really hard to believe, but I've been a pastor for 24 years. I started when I was 10 years old. All right. (laughs) Now, one of the things that you start to realize is that week by week, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. It is the continual preaching of the gospel that keeps people running the race. Okay? Now, I would say that that applies also in terms of our counseling, our small group ministries, whatever else we're doing. The, the, the continual proclamation and teaching and expounding the gospel is what keeps people running. It is the message of God's grace in Jesus Christ that is that is fuel and motivation to keep us running the race all the way to the end. And so God has established these means. And so Paul could tell Timothy, for instance, uh, Timothy, watch yourself and your doctrine. For in so doing, you will save yourself and those who hear you. Now, I want you just to register that verse for a moment, 1 Timothy 4, 16. All right? So, every Lord's Day, the the pastor opens the Word and preaches. Every time you sit down with the counselee, open your Bible, sharing the Word. What you're doing is you are um, proclaiming God's word in such a way to keep somebody running the race. That's a good way to think about counseling. It's a good way to think about preaching. What I'm doing is I'm trying to help this person keep running the race. If you would indulge a John Piper quotation, he says, and I believe this is from that chapter that I alluded to, what is at stake in pastoral admonition and in preaching is not merely the church's progression in salvation, but it's salvation. What a mistake it would be if we drew the conclusion, let us then preach only messages which show the simple plan of salvation week after week. This is most emphatically not the way to tend the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. We must remember this. There is no standing still in the Christian life. Either we're advancing towards salvation or we're drifting away to destruction. If we do not point our people to the inexhaustible riches of Christ by unfolding for them the whole counsel of God, then we steer them onto the rocks where they can make shipwreck of their faith. So, God uses the church to get people in the race. God uses the church to keep people running the race. And then here is is sort of a a sub-point, and that is, God uses one another to keep us running the race. Okay? So don't think for a second that what I'm saying is all that matters is what the pastor says on a Sunday morning to keep people running the race. That is a part of it. That may be a main or a major part of it. But God also uses means called one another. Okay? He uses the individual members of the body of Christ to keep us all running the race. So the local church then is is a means of salvation. So God has, has joined the body together so that we are actually means in each other's lives. We are means to help each other grow. Sometimes that takes place just simply, you know, it's, it's not some sort of formal counseling situation. You're just, you've just befriended somebody and you are just pointing to the Lord and you're discussing the word and it's a very informal kind of, of relationship, but you're just, you're just helping them grow. You know what you're doing? You're helping them run the race. You're helping them finish the race. Sometimes, though, we, we, we actually are called to, um, 
to more formal means within each other's lives. And so what this means is that is that God uses us and other people also in our lives as the very means of rescue and salvation for each other. Now, if your church is like our church, our church, we, 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 we like to be, um, we like to be theologically accurate. Anybody go to a church that likes to be theologically accurate? Okay. Um, we believe it's important, right? We want to make sure that we cross our theological T's and dot our theological I's with precision. And so, for instance, in our church, our church would be a, a reformed church, and we would believe wholeheartedly in the sovereignty of God in salvation. All right? And so we're careful in our language, right? Have you ever met somebody that's like really, really, really careful in their theological language? So that they say, uh, brother, tell me about your... Um, about your salvation experience, and you say, well, you know, when I was 13, I came to Christ. Brother, brother, let me stop you for a second. Let me just tell you, you didn't come to Christ because you're totally depraved. You don't have the ability to come to Christ, so let's start over. You're like, I didn't even get the first sentence out. All right. So we, we like to be accurate. We like to be precise. But let me just let me just say, as a person that likes that, the New Testament, a lot of times is far less precise than we like to be. <laughs> Sometimes the New Testament says things that make us, um, you know, get a, a rash. All right. We don't like the way that it says certain things. And we think, well, I wish Paul would have said it a little differently. And so. The New Testament, for instance, speaks like this. To Jews I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those without the law as without the law, yet not, uh, not uh, without the law of Christ, so forth. And then Paul says, I become all things to all men in order that I might save some. You're like, Paul, you can't save anybody. And yet he says, in order that I might save some. Right. The first Timothy 416 passage that I alluded to a, a few minutes ago. Watch over your life, yourself and your doctrine for in so doing, Paul says to Timothy, you'll save yourself. Oh, did Paul really believe that Timothy could save himself? And the answer is no, he didn't. And those who hear you, did Paul really think that Timothy could save those that heard his preaching? And the answer is no. But here's the point. Sometimes the New Testament uses language that is shocking. That is, that is this um, overt kind of expression to awaken us to the reality of the significance and the absolute importance of the instrumentality in God's work. You can't save anybody. I can't save anybody. But the New Testament speaks in such a way so that we can be instruments of salvation and it can talk about so that you might save some. Our text, James 5, 19 and 20, does exactly the same thing. Whoever turns a sinner back from the error of his way saves his soul from death. Okay. Now, we have to take that seriously. Okay. Um, if... If you got into biblical counseling as a hobby, find a different hobby. Okay. If you got in it for the sake of people's souls, you're in it for the right reason. Okay. So let's just take a quick look at this text and point out a few things. And I'm assuming the speaker before me, oh good, didn't drink this water. First simple observation from James 5. Those in the church can stray. Okay? Pretty simple observation. No, notice James' address in verse 19. My brothers, my brethren, my brothers and sisters, right? He's addressing the church. Notice what he says as he addresses the church. 
if anyone among you. What is he talking about? He's talking about people in that local assembly that he was addressing. And he's saying, so brethren, so that's what we would call a judgment of charity. He is assuming for the most part that the people he's addressing are brothers and sisters. Okay? He's not like overly persnickety. There's no footnote that says, my brethren, footnote, see footnote. I know that some of you aren't really brethren. Okay? It's not what he does. Okay? He just says, my brethren, gives him the judgment of charity. If any one of you, that is, <laughs> notice he doesn't say, if any among those down the street at that other church. You know, that church that does the coffee and donut thing. That aren't, they're not the ones that aren't serious like we are. If any of them stray, then you can go, no, it's if any among you, right? And then notice this, this phrase, wanders from the truth. Oh, this is what we're talking about in this whole conference, right? So the idea of to wander, by the way, it's a, it's a great uh, Greek word. It's, it's the word from which we get our word planet. So the ancients used to think that the stars kind of wandered out in the universe, okay? They kind of wandered. And so planao is the idea of to wander, or uh, it, it could also be to be uh, deluded, okay? Uh, to go astray. Now, James has already talked about the idea of going astray back in chapter 1, verses 13 to 16, when he talks about the, what happens when uh, lust is given birth in our hearts and we are led astray, right? And then that gives birth to sin and sin to death. Notice here, it's those who among you who wander away from the truth. Now, right away, when we hear that, at least kind of like people like us, and we hear wander away from the truth, we think that what's pr probably primarily in view is doctrinal error. And I don't want to uh, leave or exclude that idea, but I would say that if you look at James as a whole, James 1.18, what is it that brings forth life? It's the word of truth. Okay? It's the word of truth that actually brought us to life. And so to wander from the word of truth is not necessarily a person that says, I don't believe in the content of the gospel anymore. But it is probably more like somebody who is getting off of the course of what brought them to life. So it could be a doctrinal straying, but in all likelihood, it's probably a, a moral straying. Okay? So it's the word of truth that brings us to life, and to wander away from the word of truth um, probably entails the idea of sort of drifting from the gospel. The truth is, is something that is not only to be believed, and this is, this is very heavily emphasized in James, right? The truth is not just something believed. The truth is something that is lived, right? It is something that is manifest in our lives. And so for James, I don't think that the idea of right belief and right behavior can be separated. So the picture here of what is in view is the person who has not just changed millennial perspectives, but it's somebody who has started to drift away, started to wander away from the things that they said they believed and the things that, that, that they were committed to in their life. Now, I already know the outcome of this poll, but how many of you know somebody that's done that? Okay. All of us have, right? I mean, all of us know somebody who has made profession of faith, somebody who has, who has um, been fervent. You know, I mean, time would fail me if I told you about 24 years of ministering in Nevada and men who have stood and preached or offered prayer at the Lord's Supper or read the scriptures or counseled others only to find that they were living a complete double life and then end up wandering away completely from the things that they said they believed. Okay. So that can happen. 
That does happen. And I would urge us that when we see that starting to happen, or when we see the outcome of that, that we not simply go, oh, well, let, let's debate whether or not that person was ever truly saved to begin with. This is, to me, as a pastor, this is incredibly important. It's important in preaching. It's important in counseling. When you see a person starting to drift, so here they are running the race, you're running with them, and then they, they decide to get off of the course and start going the di- a different direction. It is a complete waste of time to sit there and to contemplate the, the, the theological implications of whether or not their conversion was genuine at that point. If the Christian life is a race that is to be finished, the issue is not for us to say, I wonder if they were really a runner. I wonder if they really actually, I wonder if their foot was actually touching the block when they started. Okay. There is a place for 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us, etc. But when you're trying to minister to somebody, your goal is to actually get them back in the race. And so, first observation, people who profess faith can wander from the truth. How does that happen? Well, I mean, it's almost countless, right? I mean... What is it that that causes somebody to say, um, Jesus has saved me, forgiven me of my sins, I've been committed to following him, and now I'm going to throw all of that away for the sake of X, Right? We we have to understand something, and that is that there is a there is a delusional power to sin, okay? and that delusional power can really blind people. I mean, is it not the very uh, definition of insanity to say that I'm going to walk away from a Savior that I say loves me? I'm going to walk away from the Bible, which I believe is the truth. I'm going to walk away from a church family. I'm going to walk away from a biological family, all because I found somebody who's 10 years younger than me and really cute. That's insanity. It's absolute insanity. John Owen, my favorite Puritan, he says this. He says, temptation can darken the mind by a sad entanglement of the affections. Okay? The desires. He says, when the, in, when the affections are engaged, they have a strong influence in blinding the mind and darkening the understanding. Remember, there's a man in our church, and I walked with this man through an awful divorce. His his first wife was absolutely terrible to him and broke his heart, and he was crushed. And we spent hours together praying, and we memorized, we probably memorized two dozen scriptures together. We were just meet. He didn't live, uh, work very far from the church office. He would come in lunch hour. We would have these times of prayer. I would see him ministering to people, see him, you know, growing out of the, the pain and the grief of that marriage. He gets remarried. And here's a guy that, that I could count on looking over at any given time after a church service and know that nine times out of ten he's going to be standing with somebody off to the side praying with them. That's just the kind of guy that, that he was. And yet then he turned around and did the very same thing to his second wife that his first wife had done to him. And did the very same thing to his kids that his first wife had done to the kids. That is 
a darkness and you're talking to this person and you, you, you want to say, who are you? You are not the person that I used to know. You ever feel that way? And so Owen goes on and he says, if any have not considered this before, you need only to open your eyes to what is around you and you'll quickly see it. The engagement of the affections clouds the mind and darkens it. Show me a man engaged in hope, love, and fear in connection with temptation, and I shall quickly show you how he is darkened and blinded. Then he says a little later, he says, affections set at liberty by temptation will run on in madness. Okay? So, um, all kinds of sins can delude, can darken. Uh, I'm going to make a suggestion here and say that there are certain sins that are peculiarly darkening and blinding. Sexual sin is one of those. Okay? I tell our young people all the time, listen, sin will make you stupid. Okay? Sexual sin will make you stupider. Addictions could be one of those sins, right? A person that was, that was uh, upright and living for the Lord, and then all of a sudden they start to be uh, uh, in bondage to certain addictions, and then all of a sudden they're, they're lying and they're stealing and doing things that they would have never done before. Um, bitterness can be incredibly self-deluding, right? We meet a bitter person and all of a sudden everything is everybody else's fault. Nothing is my own. And so we can be deluded by sin. Now here's, here's the thing as biblical counselors that we have to keep in mind, and that is that no one is exempt. That's why when Paul says in Galatians 6, 1, uh, my brethren, if anyone has taken, overtaken any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. So none of us are exempt from being deluded by sin. Uh, it doesn't matter how much Bible we know. It doesn't matter how many years we've walked in the truth. It doesn't matter how dramatic our conversion. And I don't pretend to know how a person can go from this to this. Okay? I can't tell you the, 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 the soul logic of how a person goes from being a lover of Jesus to being insanely in love with their sin. I can't explain it to you, but I know that the Bible tells me that it's real. And so the writer to the Hebrews warns us, see to it, brethren, that there not be in any one of, here's our word, you, right? So us, in any one of you, an evil heart of unbelief which falls away from the living God. Okay? That's pretty serious. Encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So it is possible for people in the church to stray, okay? to get off course. I love John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, old Christian getting off into bypass meadows, right? Getting off of the course. Second observation from the text is this. We all have a responsibility to turn that person back. When we see that person starting to stray, when we see that person starting to lag behind, and you know what the signs are, right? Here you are, you're running the race with this person, and, and, and you're, you're, you're running together, and then pretty soon you notice they're, they're lagging behind. And they're watching everything all around them instead of keeping their eyes fixed on Jesus. There are, there are these warning signs. And, and uh, you know, sometimes you just have sort of that gut that something's not right with a person, right? And you start to get a sense that, that boy, something's going on here that I may not be able to completely explain. But I just don't think that their walk with the Lord is, is where it should be. Um, follow that instinct, don't be afraid to ask people questions. So the, the text says very clearly that they are to turn him 
from the error of his way. So who's, who is to turn him? Is this an admonition just for pastors? Pastors, turn the sinner from the error of his way. Who, who is supposed to turn the, the sinner from the error of his way? What does it say? If anyone, right? You know what that means? That means that it's all our responsibility, right? It's all our responsibility. Anyone in the body, not just the elders, not just the deacons, not just those that are, that are uh, you know, certified, all of us. And then notice what the responsibility is, is to actually turn the person. That is to cause them to come back. Now, again, we know that repentance is, in fact, a work of grace. Repentance is an act of the Spirit. But notice the text says, if anyone turns him. So you know what, I, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at that and I'm going to say, it is my responsibility when I see somebody strained from the truth, it is my responsibility to actually intercede and intervene in such a way that I do my utmost to turn that person back. I want you just to think for a moment what would happen in our churches if everyone actually believed that they had the responsibility one for another to help each other run the race. Our churches would be much different places. James goes on, and this is sort of interesting. He says, he must know. So that is the person who's turned the one back. He is to know that the one turning the sinner from the error of his way, that is the one being used to rescue the wanderer, shall save his soul from death. Death here, I take to mean condemnation, judgment. Um, And to save his soul, I take that to mean a safety at the judgment. In other words, I don't don't think that what James is saying here is, um, if you turn a sinner from the error of his way, uh, what you've done is you've saved him from dying physically and you've saved his soul from physical death. I don't think that that's what James is saying. I think James is saying this in the, in the utmost meaning of these words. So you turn a person from the error of his way. You're to let that person know that what they've just done is they have actually saved that person from death, saved their soul from death. Now, why would James want them to know that? Because he wants people in the body of Christ to understand what is at stake with each other. There's a weight and there's a gravity and there are eternal implications for the way that we actually take responsibility for each other. And then James turns around and he says, and she'll cover a multitude of sins. I take that to mean that there's some different opinions as to what this means. I just think the most simple, straightforward is that through the act of turning somebody that's wayward back, that the wayward person's sins, which were probably many, have now been forgiven, covered. In other words, let the person know that the one who intervenes has done a saving work. Now, I don't know if you think about your counseling that way, And I know there are different counseling situations for sure. The person that comes in and is grieving because they've lost their husband, they're not wandering from the truth. They're looking for help for grief. 
But let's face it, a lot of the counseling that we do, I'll speak for myself, a lot of the counseling that I do ends up revolving around people who are looking at quitting the race. And so if we take the admonition seriously, watch out, brethren, lest there be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief, right? which falls away from the living God. Scary. What's the antidote? But encourage one another, one another, day after day. As long as it's still called today. Lest any of us be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So this is serious, serious business. Now, as we, as we think about this, let me, just, let me just point out a few things here as we, as we make some application. I would, I would suggest that this is probably one of the most neglected aspects of church life today. Okay? And I think there are different reasons. And, and, and what I'm talking about specifically is... The idea of actually um, aggressively, lovingly, but aggressively getting involved in people's lives and trying to turn them back. All right. I think that this is one of the most neglected aspects of church life today. And I think there are a lot of reasons why uh, we don't typically see this or or engage in it. Um, One is uh, we're Americans by and large. And we have this uh, gigantic idol called privacy. Okay? And so we have sort of this, 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 this cultural norm that basically says it's none of your business. Okay? And I want to say that the biblical norm crashes head on with the cultural norm. It is our business because we're in the body of Christ. Okay? Now, if you're just, you know, the guy that lives four doors down from me, you know, and I see some bad activity happening, I may or may not come and talk to you because that really might not be my business. But if you're going to profess faith in Christ and be in the body of Christ, we are one another's business. But we have a cultural norm out there that says, you know what? Get your nose out of my business. I think another reason why the church doesn't do this is because of of a concept of professionalism. And that is, I thought that's what we hired the pastor to do. That's got to be the elder's job. I mean, what do they do anyway? So they should be the ones going out and doing this. Um, I think another reason why we typically don't do this is because of bad theology that just basically says, well, you know, I mean, at least they're saved. Well, if, if that's the mentality, then we're actually ignoring huge parts of the New Testament that would indicate to us that the fact is, is that if they continue in that path on the last day, they won't be saved. And so just to assume some form of easy believism and to say, well, you know what, I've, I knew him when he was eight years old. I saw him get baptized, you know, and I know that he's 30 now and he's a serial adulterer. But, you know, I mean, after all, he'll be saved. He'll just lose a few rewards. That's really bad theology. And it's not only bad theology, it is dangerous theology. Because there have been countless people who have bought into the idea that salvation is nothing more than an act of the will, a simple decision, raising the hand, walking the aisle, doing whatever, jumping through whatever evangelistic hoop, and they do that thing that anybody can do, anybody at least that's got, you know, movable limbs. Movable limbs doesn't qualify you to enter the kingdom of heaven. And yet what we've done is we've made evangelical sacraments of movable limbs, raise a hand, walk an aisle, something like that, sign a card. And then we say, now, they're saved. How did we start? The Christian life is a race. 
We have no right to conclude that there are people that are genuinely saved that have never ran a day in their life. Never manifest the fruit of, of, of God's saving grace. And in fact, what we do is we end up neglecting and ignoring a whole group of texts that would indicate that that person is not actually right with God. And we say, you know, well, I know that the Bible says you'll know them by their fruits, but that applies to other people, not this person. So the church may not do this simply because we have a really bad theology that just assumes that somebody's going to go to heaven after all. And you know what? They'll end up, you know, scrubbing toilets in the millennium, but at least they'll be there. Sometimes it's hard to be a church that does this when you live in a country where you have just as many choices for churches as you do for places to go to eat dinner. That makes it hard. You know? I think also, when it comes right down to it, probably one of the main reasons why we don't do this James 5, 19, and 20 thing is because it is incredibly uncomfortable. Incredibly uncomfortable. And so, I remember years. <laughs> so, we, we did. We started the church in 1993, started services in March of 94. I was, I was actually very young. I wouldn't have gone to our church. I was too young. I wouldn't have gone across the street to hear me preach. So, but this, uh, this lady, she was really sweet and she had a relationship and there was sin involved. And I remember telling her, you, you need to go, Matthew 18, 15 and following, you need to go and confront this person in love. And she says, confrontation isn't my gift. I don't like to confront people like you do. And I thought, well, there's a lot wrong with that statement. I mean, first of all, I don't like confronting people. In fact, if you're a normal person, confrontation is not what you think, what wake up thinking about. Who can I confront today? You know, that's not what. And in fact, for most of us, when we know that confrontation is coming, you get the knot in your stomach. You, you, you think about it. You lose sleep over it. None of us like to, to confront. But the fact is, is that we're all called to it and it's not a special gift. So how can we turn people back? Well, first, I want to say that we'll never be the kind of people that are turning people back until we actually really love their souls. Here's my, here's my 30 second soapbox. When you enter into a counseling relationship with somebody, that person is not just a problem that's being presented to you. That person is a soul made in the image and likeness of God. There, there is a way, and I know none of you would ever do this, but there is a way to look at counseling where it's almost like a, it's almost like a challenge. To us, can I diagnose it properly? Can I get the can I get the right homework? Can I can I can I marshal the right texts here? Because I know that and and it can become very mechanical. And I want to remind us that we'll never be the kind of people that are turning people from the air of their way until we realize that we're dealing with living, breathing souls made in the image and likeness of God who will never die. And so you have, to be, you have to be convinced that this is a matter of loving your brother in such a way, loving your sister in such a way, so that if, so that if God would have said, um, you know, where's your brother? You don't say with Cain, am I my brother's keeper? Because you know actually the right answer to that, right? 
Cain's trying to get off the hook. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer comes back with the resounding, yes, you are. Yes, you are. And so just taking that responsibility on yourself is absolutely huge. And so Proverbs 24, 11, and 12, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? The first means by which we turn people back is to actually love them enough to do it. I think counseling is a manifestation of that kind of love. Should be. It should be, right? Second thing, I would say, and this is from James 5 as well, and and that is, you have to engage in, in earnest, fervent prayer. Okay? By the way, if, if you are, and it doesn't matter whether it's informal or formal, um, whether you've you know, filled out you know, the personal uh, information and all of that kind of stuff, um, the, the, the fact is, is that what we're doing whether it's actually going after the wandering one or you're dealing with that wandering one that's sitting across from you, the fact is, is that we're doing something that is, that is beyond our capability. You don't have the power to convince anybody. You don't have the power to persuade anybody. You don't have the power to turn anybody. And therefore, you go into it with an absolute, utter, complete dependence upon the God who can. So the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And you pray. And you pray hard. Now, I know you're going, well, of course you pray. But li- listen, I mean, <laughs> prayer is this incredibly powerful means. So I have to keep this a little vague. So we had a situation not very long ago where we had a couple in our church and one of the, one of the spouses had expressed um, their desire to leave the marriage. And so we start talking and so forth. Then the person expresses specific plans in leaving the marriage. I love these people. They've been a part of our congregation for a number of years. I love them. Every morning, I'm waking up and I'm just praying fervently for this couple and just pleading with God for both of them. Every every time my wife and I would pray together, we would plead with God together for this couple. One of them was in church last Lord's Day. And said they were staying in the marriage. We can all pray. And storm the throne of grace. It doesn't matter if it's one of your kids. If it's a spouse. If it's somebody you're ministering to in the church. Prayer is a powerful means by which we can turn somebody back. The next thing. and this This is simple but this is hard. Communicate. Communicate. So, calls, letters, texts, visits. <laughs> Don't. So, this is, this is t- take this in, in the overall context. Don't waste too much time on small talk when you've got somebody that's wandering from the truth. Sometimes we get so uncomfortable, and so for, in this most recent case, I would make it a habit of texting both, every day, a passage of Scripture. For the one intending to leave, they were usually warnings from the Bible. Okay? Warning texts. Um... 
I'm not interested at that point in, in consoling a person that is raising a high hand against God. I'm interested in them seeing the results of what happens if they follow through. That's how I understand the warnings to work, is that the warnings give the person pause and bring them back. Okay? I live in Carson City. If I go visit my parents, I have to drive over the Sierra Nevada mountains. It's a great drive, by the way. I take Highway 50 from time to time. You know why? Because it's really windy. And you know what's all along the road? These yellow signs. You know what these yellow signs say? These yellow signs, they have like a picture of a truck tipping over. You know the signs I'm talking about? And it will say like 45 miles per hour. We, those are warning signs, right? The warning signs is not designed for me to slam on my brakes and say, oh, snap, I'm going to perish. This is where people die all the time. This is, I guess, the end of my trip. The warning is designed to get me to the end of my journey safely. So I use the warnings with those that are quitting the race. Don't dare quit the race. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Behold then the kindness and severity of God to those who continue his kindness, right? But to those who fall away, severity, right? So use, use, use. So don't waste on small talk. So this person tells me last night, because I would go into where this person works and have other business there, and I'd see this person, and then I noticed they'd start avoiding me, right? Like, like, you know, looking around the corner to see if I was still there. And, uh, and, and so I would just make it a point. I'm not going to leave until I go and see this person and say, hey, I want you to know I'm still praying for you, right? This person told me last night, I hated it, hated seeing you come in. Hated it. But God used it, all right? So communicate, communicate. And then... Um, Obviously, church discipline. Jim just gave a really great talk on church discipline in the hour before. Let me just say one thing. Church, church discipline is a means by which God rescues wandering sinners. Okay. Now, I know that's, that it, that only really works if you're counseling people, ministering to people in, in the context of your own local church. Because you can't, like, enforce other churches to discipline but don't leave out discipline as a means by which we rescue those who are wandering. So a number of years ago, we had another couple. And um, I, I like to think that we're probably not abnormal in this, that this is just sort of the way life is no matter where you live, not just in Nevada. But we had another couple, and the wife was absolutely determined that she was going to leave the marriage. In fact, she had told her husband that she wasn't going to church the next morning because she was going to go look for an apartment. So my wife and another lady in our church that are friends of this woman get wind of the intention. This is a Saturday. They go to her house at 10 o'clock at night and they stand on her front porch until almost one in the morning pleading with her sharing scripture with her. And at first she was angry and resistant and almost shut the door on him a number of times, but she couldn't because she knew they loved her. Right? That woman and her husband are flourishing to this day. And I think of James 5, 19 and 20, and those two women faithfully standing on that front porch for almost three hours doing what? Doing their utmost by the grace of God to turn somebody from the error of their way. This is the role of the church. And it's the role that we all share. May God help us. May God help us to do this for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. We pray that it would stir our hearts and we pray that we would be actively engaged in what you call us to do. 
and we commit ourselves to you. We commit our, our representative churches um, and pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful. Uh, we pray that we would truly be means of grace in one another's lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.